you don't touch or fuck with Mark Brzezicki's kit. Okay, hello everyone. This is episode 67 of the Great Divide podcast. It's been a while since episode 66, but we think that you will agree it was well worth the wait. We want to welcome someone who we've wanted to have on the show since it, since the show began and we finally it finally worked out. So good things have come to those of us who have waited. And we want to welcome Tony Butler, the great Tony Butler to our show. Welcome Tony. Hello there. Hello people who listen to the podcast. Hello there. Hello. Hello from Norway. Hello from Norway. I can see a picture of you, and you're wearing a Yes t-shirt, so you're my friend already. <laughs> that sounds very good. Yeah, you and I will be the prog uh, contingency on this call. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Tom is the old punk. Yeah, yeah. I'm, the, I'm the old punk guy, but I, I like some of it, but yeah, some of it escapes me a bit. Well, I kind of started off prog and went a little bit punk and then just decided loud guitars were just the way anyway. So. <laughs> as long as that's there, you're good. Uh, I'm sorry it's taken so long for me to get here, but uh, there's a reason why. So you'll find out. Yeah, why, why has it taken so long, Tony? Why has it taken so long? Um, I'm, I, I kind of, this is a, a, a story really that kind of has quite a long chronology and I'll I'll keep it sort of sparse at the moment, but I can always delve into detail. Um, obviously, after we lost Stuart, I just didn't want to do anything. You know, the the whole point of the band was that it was four of us. I know, you know, things kind of went and changed during the time, but it was essentially four of us who did something, in my opinion, a completely and utterly original, honest, and and just brilliant and fabulous. Uh, and that's why I was always involved with the band. And, and from that standpoint, we just kept growing and growing and growing in terms of the band and in terms of the music that we were producing and so on and so forth. Uh, and even through the sort of the slender times, one can say, during the sort of late 90s, it was still a big part of all of our lives. Uh, and then to having Stuart take himself away from us really just kind of, it just opened the floodgates to all sorts of negativity and all sorts of problems. I mean, we were so close as human beings. Uh, you know, the band was almost sort of secondary in that particular respect. So not to have one of us around was just a shock. It was an upset, and it was just something that I don't think any of us really contemplated. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people had, you know, towards the end, people had, ideas that things weren't right with Stuart and things weren't good, particularly me, but I, wouldn't, I wasn't very vocal about it. Uh, the only time I was kind of vocal about it is after I, I took Stuart aside on the last European tour we did, and I just realised I had to say my piece about how I felt things were going and how I felt he was, the state of mind that he was in. And uh, I just said to him, I gave him, I gave him an opportunity to unlock a door which might sort of help, and to say, look, I'm happy to pull the plug on this. Let the band take a sabbatical. You go off and do stuff. Repair your mind. Repair your body. Repair your soul. Do something that interests you musically that doesn't involve the band. 
and I'm happy to, to, to you know lay low and do whatever I do and and and, uh, and just get out of the way and hopefully sometime in the future you might ring me back and say you know I've had a really good break and I'd like to sort of do something else you know we had a very very close relationship on that score we, we were very we were very close in terms of conversations like that. Mm. That that conversation spawned a song that I wrote called Dream Boy. With rainbows high, your time bomb ticks by slowly. Dream Boy, cried for his world at my window. Dream Boy, he laughed at my world by my window. But fake both. Because uh, it, it was a moment in time, and that song encapsulated it. And uh, unfortunately, as history is now a part of it, it, it didn't transpire. You know, he didn't take that time out. He he plunged into something else while he was carrying all his problems and his demons. He he plunged himself into something that I thought was not great. Um, I didn't. It's funny enough, I remember when Ian Grant sent me a, a, a demo that Stuart had done, you know, when he first started off with his other American colleague, that um, I didn't even bring, couldn't even bring myself to listen to it. Wow. And I still haven't this, to this day. You know, I, I see posts on Facebook or, on, or back then and people talking about Blue Healer, the tracks that they were doing then and when they turned into the Raphael's the tracks. But I kept out of that conversation because I never listened to them, ever. Mm-hmm. And, and to this day, I wouldn't be able to recognize any of those songs that they did or their albums because it wasn't part of me and it wasn't part of what I thought our relationship was. You know, it, it was very much, you know, I wasn't feeling like the jilted woman, but when you go on to another relationship and the other one's left by the wayside, I had a very good feeling of what that feels like. Yeah. And having been divorced myself, you know, that was very, very real and very true. But I didn't want to know. I didn't want to get involved with, with that. You know, I, I kept I kept close tabs with Bruce at the time because you know, Bruce was just such a great friend, and 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 you know, we we got together on certain occasions. I can't remember the chronology of this, but we got together in Scotland a couple of times afterwards and tried to do some uh, stuff together, particularly when we were looking at possibly doing the BBW thing. Uh, so and writing was something I enjoyed doing with Bruce as well, but we were listless. We were directionless. We didn't really know what we would need to be doing. You know, should we be sort of evolving via the old formulas, or should we looking to do something? Because me, me and Bruce were the real rockheads of the band. Because Stuart had his sort of sympathies in different directions, particularly country. But me and Bruce were the guys who had to crank it up a little bit, and uh, you know, we kind of imposed that on the Buffalo Skinners because. Yeah, I like our guitars. I like guitars that scream and sing melody and 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 have some passion behind it. Right. Uh, and we were very, very much part of that sort of aspect, which wasn't that into, to be honest. You know, he he was he was very much more by that time. Particularly, I mean, the song "The Buffalo Skinners" I think was very indicative of what where his head was at at that time, and it was obvious that he would want to move further into that direction, and. Um, Something else that really kind of made me think that I needed to give way was um, when we were sort of being sort of asked to go to 
um, Nashville to go and do some demos in the late 90s. Uh, I went there very open-minded uh, to go out there and sort of, you know, see what we're doing, be part of Stuart's new sort of uh, habitat out in Nashville because his personal situation had changed and he was living out there. And, you know, as one does, go out there, suck it and see and see what happens. Uh, and I just felt, felt myself feeling very alien from the whole thing. I mean, I love America. I mean, I've loved American tours and stuff like that, but I felt a little bit alienated in, in Nashville because I didn't, I didn't like the, the musical direction Stuart was going in. I felt very uncomfortable in Nashville. Uh, that was encapsulated by the fact that one night, well, it was a day off, I think it was a Sunday, we had a day off and I was sitting in a diner, sports diner, watching a game. Uh, and then these squad cars pulled up and uh, you know, the guys came in, bowled up and kind of lifted me out of my seat and took me out to, out of the uh, out into a squad car oh, man. Started, and started interrogating me and I like you know I'm this little guy from London you know and I was shitting myself and they were <laughs> telling me to speak properly oh my god and I'm telling them they are I am and they you know trying to sort of reason with them and tell them you know I'm I'm in a band and I'm British and blah 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 but and then I tried show them showing them my driving license and uh, you know they just thought that was pretty Mickey Mouse as well and it's not until Another car showed up with a, which I, you know, can only imagine was a slightly higher ranking officer who kind of recognised me but knew the name of the band and I think he had or knew Stuart, uh, of which then they apologised and let me go. But I went wow. back into the diner, obviously really shaken up, and uh, the proprietor of the diner kind of came to, came to me and just asked me if I was okay, and then he produced a copy of the. Uh, the local newspaper, which is the Tennessean, I believe. Uh, and they showed me, there's a picture on the front page of this photo fit of this guy that they were looking for, for holding up a, a gas station. And it was a black guy with a black beanie. Now everybody knows that I wear a black beanie. So I obviously looked like the, the suspect, which is why I got picked up. Oh, but, man. uh, <laughs> but it's great uh, Southern hospitality you experienced there. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> You know, I kind of cut short my visit there and went home. The rest of the guys came back. Uh, and then we were due to go out maybe a month or two later to go and do a second writing session. And I didn't go. I just wow. didn't feel as though I had any place there. I didn't like the material. Uh, it was very much, I think, Stuart was going in a direction that he needed, in my opinion, to go down himself. It wasn't a big country thing. It wasn't wasn't it wasn't a kind of forward movement for the band. It was a forward movement for Stuart. So I didn't go, but we we got together again, and I think we had another writing session, which formed the basis of driving to Damascus. Now, when we were recording that, things seemed weirdly good. Stuart seemed to be in fine fettle. The songs that we decided to, to, to use for the album, I, I was wholeheartedly behind because all the kind of the earlier Nashville demo stuff kind of got sidelined a little bit and I was kind of, that placated me to an extent. Mm. But um, the, what we didn't know is that um, Stuart really wasn't in good shape at all. Uh, and that was, we found that towards the end of the, the recording sessions for, for um, Damascus and... Uh, you know, we just realized that, you know, things were slipping downhill. So from that point on, and then we had the tragedy 
the British tragedy with um, Fragile Thing, with the single looking, yes. was doing really well at, um, at BBC uh, Radio 2. It was getting a lot of airplay, great reactions, you know, because we featured uh, Eddie Reader on that particular track and she was, she was good currency here. Uh, and then, for some reason, the, the, the format got um, this, the, 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 the organisation that deals with the different sort of rules and regulations uh, decided that the format of this particular single uh, contravened um, some rules of engagement. Uh, and from a, from a single that looked like it was going to head for the top 40, ended up in the top 70. Mm. Uh, when we found that out, we were, do- we were actually doing a, a record signing in um, uh, Tower Records in Glasgow. And we were told the news there, and uh, this this wall of gloom just descended on everybody. And things started to go very wrong with Stuart. Stuart kind of went missing some time after that. You know, we were offered uh, a, a Daryl Hall and John Oates tour in America, couldn't find Stuart. And, uh, the whole thing just became mm. a quagmire of upset and... Uh, and then uh, we know what happened after that. So, and uh, as I say, the last time I saw him was, um, yeah, I, I, we all agreed to do something I knew we shouldn't have done. But basically, I think everybody needed some money, and we got asked to do this uh, gig in Malaysia in Kuala Lumpur, which um, we had a lot of money dangled in front of us. And by the time Stuart arrived in in Kuala Lumpur, he was in such a horrible state; it was upsetting and. Uh, possibly the worst gig I've ever known because Stuart was just out. He was totally out there. We sounded like, and I've said this before, we sounded like our own tribute band that night. And I was just so upset with the whole thing. And I just wanted him to go home, go and get his shit sorted out and, you know, just just become a human being again and whatever his demons were, sort them out. Uh, That was the last time I saw him. But he'd been to Britain on a couple of occasions with uh, with the Raphaels, and I was just getting reports from people. This is kind of pre Facebook and all that kind of stuff. But I was getting emails from people saying, you know, what a bad state that Stuart was in. They saw him; he was falling over. He was blah 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 blah, and it was really sort of soul destroying. Yeah. Um, it's the one thing that Stuart and I never really used to do throughout our whole career together is we never phoned each other. I think we phoned each other maybe four or five times in nearly 20 years. Wow. And, uh, but one night I was, uh, I was out sort of drinking with my friends and I got back and uh, my wife said, oh, I've just had a phone call from Stuart. And I said, what? Uh, he phoned to sort of pay his respects because we just lost my, my wife's mother. Mm. And he phoned to, 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 bring, to give his condolences and and. If I was at home, that would have been the last time I spoke to him because not long after that he went. So, wow. My, <laughs> you talk about long-winded questions. This is a long. No, this answer. is great. This is fantastic stuff. When, when, uh, when I extricated myself from everything, I realized what I wanted to do in music, which was what I did. It was being a great band make great music with great like-minded people whose kick wasn't about becoming famous. It was about bringing, making something famous. And that sort of filled all the dots. And I kind of thought that's never going to happen for me again. I need to do something different. So I decided to go into teaching 
so I went back to university and I got my, I discovered I had a brain again <laughs> and got myself a teaching degree and ended up getting some work sort of teaching here and there. And I finally ended up in a college in, in North Devon uh, where I eventually ran my own music department. And, uh, and after a few years, got a really nice venue with recording studios, up-to-date recording uh, materials and rehearsal rooms and i basically put together what i would call tony butler's toy box <laughs> for students and i really enjoyed i found as i enjoyed teaching as much as i enjoyed playing in the band but all through my college teaching times i never ever thought about you know getting into music again until um and you're going to hear this a few times ian grant who's probably the biggest satellite in my orbit, mm. called me and was talking about the, the 25th anniversary of Big Country. Mm. And, uh, and I said, yeah, well, what about it? The band don't exist. And he said, well, shouldn't we do something about it? And I didn't. I was not in a mood. But then again, I had Bruce contact me and I had Mark contact me. And I said, okay, if we do something, let's just do it as the three of us. I don't want the highfalutin ideas of super groups or anything like that i just want you know if we're going to pay homage and respect to the band and Stuart, it's just got to be us uh ian capitulated i got my way we did a few gigs a few tours and uh we recorded some and all that kind of stuff uh and i i kind of enjoyed it because it was nice playing with mark and bruce again it was brilliant watching bruce take on you know, two guitar rolls into one and trying to make it work. Yeah. Both Bruce and I taking on lead vocals. You know, we were all in uncharted territory. And Mark stepped up to the plates as well with backing vocals and stuff. We're still called Big Country. Thank you. We're driving to Damascus. Driving to Damascus from a sandstorm rose 
It was, a, it was an exhilarating thing to think that we could actually go out there and, and pay homage to Stuart in that way. But as soon as it's finished, I was off. I was out. I didn't want to do anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think somewhere around 2009, I get another email from Ian saying that um, the BBC were putting on um, uh, a, uh, a concert to commemorate the, the legend that was Kirsty McCall. Kirsty McCall who was a great friend of ours, but also Steve Lillywhite's wife, yeah. who passed away in that tragic accident. Yeah, that bullet uh, thing, yeah. Yeah, and BBC Two were putting together a sort of commemorative sort of thing for her. I found it very difficult to say no, because I just thought that was just me being stupid. So I agreed to do it. Bruce, by this time, had, had done some work with a band called Dead Men Walking, which featured Mike Peters on vocals and other people. Mm-hmm. And Mike and Bruce said, well, why don't we get Mike in for this? Because, you know, he can do the job. He's a fan, blah, blah, blah. And um, I said, yeah, cool. Um, the gig didn't happen, which uh, I was kind of okay about. You know, it's a shame we couldn't sort of do our bit for that. But uh, it was a case of then afterwards that I got pressured into sort of saying, well, now we've got this idea of the van. Mike was up for it. Why don't we go for it? And I said, again, I didn't want to feel like I was the one that's going to keep people's ideas and endeavors back. And we were all still reeling at this point as well from Stuart's class, you know. So I I decided to capitulate for the second time and go for it. And um, we got... We got Mike in, that's great. So we had the big question, are we going to go the whole hog and get another guitarist? Now, I harbored, for some reason, this idea of, yeah, get a second guitarist, but it should be somebody who can bring something to the plate, not only, you know, sort of take a, a, a guitar role in the band, but possibly maybe even something in the future. Uh, and uh, the person who I kind of nominated and wanted to bring into the fold was a guy called Johnny Marr. He was, uh, he was a guitarist with the Smiths. Oh, yeah. Wow. I had no idea he was ever considered. Yeah, well, in my in my mind, it wasn't considered. It was kind of a done deal. It was just a matter of getting in touch with him. Wow. This is where Bruce Ben put his foot down and said that he wanted his son to, 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 to be a second guitarist. It worked better for him. They worked together all the time. He could coach him. He could do it. He can bring him up to speed and blah, blah, blah. So I was faced with that dilemma. You know, do I – I was nearly going to swear there. Do I upset Bruce by being stoic about what I think or – do I be part of the band and you know, give it a chance? Uh, I, then I said, Bruce, okay, let's do it. And we did it. And, you know, f- to start off with, it was okay. Mike was fun to start off with because he was, he was a fan. The opportunity to go up and sing these songs, which he's obviously enjoyed singing in his own right in the past, was great. Uh, the first tour, I realised that he was going to be singing not to sound like Stuart, but do his own thing, but pay homage to him as well. And I thought Mike did that really, really well. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, after that, the notion of carrying on building it up and building up. And uh, at this point, I won't go into too much detail, which I will uh, advise you of in a bit. Sure. But come in 2012, 
Butler had enough. <laughs> there were a lot of things that I didn't like about what was going on, what was going down. Uh, there was business things. There was sort of inter-band personal differences about a lot. And I found myself at the butt end of all the differences. And I began to really feel as though I had no, no, no part to play in the group. And at the same time, that's also brought up other situations, which I won't comment about because I don't think it's my place. But sure. it's, it saw myself and Ian in a very difficult situation being with this. And because we didn't see any great future, and the future, as far as I was concerned, and Ian, was that if we could come up with an album that was good enough to be competitive, to get the people who used to support the band back in the day back on board, then we might have a shot. Unfortunately, I didn't think it was up to the, up to, up to uh, the, the challenge. And that included me, because I was very much part of the writing experience as we tried uh, in, you know, back in sort of 2011. And I was, produ- I was kind of trying to contribute stuff that I wasn't even happy with myself, let alone what everybody else was bringing to the table. So I really just thought maybe my, my time's up, time to go and, you know, I was teaching all the time through all through this. I was having to make time to make to make way for my job as well. So, oh wow, yes, yeah, so all the way all the way from two thousand two, all the way through to, to two thousand twelve. I was teaching. I was you know holding a job down. You know, I was marking students' work of, of high degree stand and stuff like that. Plus, trying to write songs and taking time out to do tours and taking time out to do writing sessions. Wow. I didn't mind. I mean, it made me, I made myself feel really wanted, but... <laughs> <laughs> right, but that's a lot of work. I mean, yeah. teaching especially, as you well know. That's... Yeah, so I, the, the crunch came for me at the end of uh, a tour that we did, which culminated in 2012. And I, um, I put out my apologies, and I, I, sort of, I decided to not leave the band, but I decided to retire. Mm. I thought that made it less ominous, if I was to retire rather than leaving, because then I wouldn't have to explain myself. Yeah. Because that's the last thing I really wanted to do. I didn't want to explain myself. I didn't want anything else to do with it. I wanted to stop. I just wanted to sort of take some time out, still doing my work. But think, because I, I was, I, you know, then I was on my way to being 60. I was kind of thinking, you know, I know that we've got some great role models in Townsend and Jagger and all these people, but I just never saw myself in that situation. <laughs> you know, being at that age and doing and and being a rock musician. Right. So um, once I got over that separation, I, um, I kept very much in touch with Ian, who I you know I admire Ian not only as a manager but also as a friend and. You know, we always used to keep in touch and talk about stuff and, you know, the state of the music business and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, so about 2013, by this time, I've been divorced for four or five years. I've got a new partner who's a lovely lady called Claire. Oh, great. And um, I would come and stay with her back in the town where I used to live in, this place, which is the old capital of Cornwall, which is called Launceston. I would come here on weekends and sort of do all my marking. And the summer of 2013 was a glorious summer. And I found myself sitting in her garden and I started strumming, just playing. And that's something I hadn't done for a long time. And, uh, and I just kept on doing it. And it was, every day I was coming up with different ideas and blah, blah, blah. 
Uh, and then all these lovely new concepts of laptops with Pro Tools and all these <laughs> sort of toys and stuff. Mm-hmm. It all started sort of gelling in my head. And um, I started putting some stuff together. Now, I hadn't played bass for God knows. I was all, it was just all guitar and I was just starting to do all this stuff. And, and then I started thinking, well, if I'm writing songs, what am I going to write about? I'm not writing about, you know, my past with the band. I'm not going to write about any political stuff because I never have been that way inclined. What could I do? And I kind of thought back to the kind of bits and pieces I, I've done in before. You know, I've kind of had two shots at writing solo albums, which have just been little sort of pack things. Uh, my last one, um, which was basically about, you know, how, how does one cope? You know, how does life go on when life doesn't seem like it wants to exist anymore and that kind of stuff. But, uh, I mean, that was a very kind of weird time for me because I remember sort of spending a lot of time, uh, this is just before I got divorced, and I spent a lot of time in my little recording studio in the house that we had in Cornwall putting this album together. And because I couldn't afford a drummer, and Mark was nowhere to be seen, <laughs> I programmed all the drums myself, and that took two years. And man, I decided... I'm never going to do that again. <laughs> that was the most excruciating thing. And also, it pissed my daughter off because my studio was at top, above her rooms. Oh, so, man. <laughs> so uh, I decided, you know, that was the last time it was going to happen. But when I played in that album, he didn't like it. Really? And wow. that set me back. That really set me back. And also what set me back is my, my wife didn't like it. And I kind of thought, wow. Wow. What fucking cloud have I been living on? <laughs> right. One and a half years, and that all came back to me in you know back in the summer of 2013, and I was kind of shaking. But you know, why am I doing this? And I'm possibly going to set myself up to fail again. But I persevered because life was different. I was you know in a completely different headspace. I was about to become a grandfather, mm. and you know life was sort of very much changing. And um, I I just kept on that summer just writing. Come 2014, I was, I was developing the songs and I was putting lyrics to them. And I found that there was a kind of underlying sort of thread to, to the songs. And I, I, was, I was doing something that I wasn't quite clear about. And it wasn't until 2015, because what I was doing at that time, I was utilizing the recording equipment at college to start putting down proper recordings of these things. And it started off with me utilising an ex-student of mine who was a drummer with a, a local North Devon band who uh, I've always been very friendly with and always been encouraging with. And I said to him, well, you couldn't just come and lay some drums down for me. And uh, he did a couple of tracks for me, and I was really kind of, wow, this feels real. I'm not programming these things. They're being played for me. And I thought, okay, that's cool. And these songs were sort of, yeah, I, I was like it. By that time, I was writing songs about my my parents. I was writing songs about people close to me. I was kind of getting a bit more aware of the environment I was living in and surrounded by. And the songs were sort of taking on what I later sort of coined as an audio biography. And, and, And I sort of unwittingly got into something that was about something that I've never done in my life. It was all about me. All through my musical career, which you know has been sort of quite wide and varied, um, I've always done for other people because I've loved doing that. You know, I've worked with some of the most 
unbelievable musicians. I've worked with Pete Townsend. You don't get much more of an education in mm. everything to do with rock music by, by sort of being in his company, working with him, understanding that kind of musical genius mentality. Uh, uh, and even working with you know hilarious people like I, I'm not sure if you guys are very aware of, but a, a comedian called Lenny Henry. I did a session for him many many moons ago. Oh, but wow. even working in that kind of environment, I was working with people and I was absorbing all this stuff. Uh, but it, the, the, the underlying feature was that I was working with lots of people that I loved, and then the epitome of that was when I, you know, when I joined forces with Stuart. You know, when my band on the air supported the skids and the first night I, we played, I watched the skids that night and was just bowled over, not by the band and the sound and everything, because that was cool. But there's this sort of weirdly handsome looking guy playing a guitar in a style that I'd never heard and, and <laughs> thought, hmm, I like this. And, um, you know, as a kind of... Dr- little dream that passed my head at that night but when it actually came to fruition you know a couple of years later I was more than sort of I knew the destiny of what was going to happen but I've always worked with and and completely committed myself to other people but I've never done I've never been big enough to do anything myself and I thought in my old age um some people have a bucket list and I decided I was going to have a bucket list and one of the things I thought I was going to do I'm going to do an album about me, my life, my time, and be what I want to be, do what I want to do, and incorporate everything that I've wanted to do in terms of music and put it into an album. Now, from 2014, 2015, this started to become very much in fruition. Uh, I'd already been involved with a, a, a little side project called Dogs or Gods, which was a project about myself uh, and two other colleagues of mine. In fact, they were my bosses at, at college. Oh, really? And, wow. Yeah. We used to just sort of jam in the college studio just because it was a little sort of uh, a way of sort of getting getting the day's teaching out of your head and sort of become musicians again and sort of reconnect <laughs> with the reason why you're there. We, you know, I think you know, back in the day we did a little album called Flying, which we sold about 20 which was nice. We did a few gigs, and after that, I decided I'm not going to do any more gigs because I'm not humping my own equipment anywhere. Anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but the reason I got into that is because uh, the guy, uh, the guitarist, a chap called Tom Norden, you know, he he's, he's been a songwriter all his life. He used to be the guitarist with, with a, a band called the Edgar Broughton Band. For all you hippie heads out there. you probably can remember that name. Um, but I wanted to give him a chance to sort of give his material an airing, which is what that first album was. And when we decided to do the second album, it wasn't again about him. It was about the drummer. Because uh, Colin, Colin Wright, who's the drummer, he's a, he, was a, 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 he ran the art department and he was a, a very high-quality fine artist. But he also loved his uh, late 60s and 70s rock music. 
and he was into all sorts of weird and wonderful things and he wanted to experiment with his songwriting so I, I, I afforded him the same grace as I did with Tom so we decided to you know, do the same thing go and jam in the studio and put something together which has turned out to be this album called Histories by Dogs or Gods um, and all this was just fun to do but I never ever saw it as something that's really going to move us forward you know, something that I can sort of dabble with and play and go and do some gigs and stuff. But I never yeah. thought it was going to be something that was going to be real. But but by this time, this project that I was working on was begin, becoming very, very real because after I got Colin to do some tracks, I had this idea that somebody, somebody out there needs to work with me because there's somebody that I really want to play drums on this. <laughs> Uh, I waited for this somebody for about three months and, you know, just as well I liked him because otherwise I would have told him. <laughs> but who could I, this possibly be? Who could this possibly be? <laughs> he's Polish, he's quite tall, <laughs> and he's got an unpronounceable name. That's right. <laughs> when Mark came up, when I eventually got him to come up to do some tracks for me, for some, I felt totally galvanized. I felt totally like I was doing something real. Uh, you know, I, I had him for one day and uh, I had a couple of, I had about f four tracks I wanted him to lay drums down for. We sat talking for about four hours hmm. about stuff that we hadn't had a chance to talk about since, you know, since I sort of let go of the guys back in 2012. And we had a very, very deep personal discussion about stuff that, you know, that should always remain between the two of us. But what was very obvious is that we were still, as we always thought of ourselves, we were still brothers. Mm. And for him to be working on a project with me, on my project, I just thought was the, the, the biggest thing that I could ever hope for. Anyway, by, by the time we stopped talking, got round to some tracking, I, I was, I, I, I felt like, the days when I sat next to Steve Lillywhite, I just felt this glow of hugeness. Hmm. And, you know, he was bashing away at the drums and then we'd do a take and he says, is that all right? And I said, that, is that all right? You know, who seems to be talking to here? And he said, I really like that song. Do I, you know, am I right? And he's, you know, this is so marked. Uh, and we eventually got him to do four tracks in two and a half hours. And I was just the happiest, happiest man on earth. And, uh, he came back to my um, my house after we and we sat and sort of continued our chat and stuff like that and uh, and then he disappeared out of my life again and uh, but I realised then I had a proper bona fide project that I could present to the world at some stage, uh, which is why we're here now. I've decided. I, I, the one thing I had to do, I had to have one acid test just to make sure that I wasn't again fooling myself that I was doing something that really maybe I had no no right or reason to do. I sent Ian a copy of some rough mixes, of which I was extremely nervous about his reaction to. And he's a guy who likes to sort of listen to music and absorb it and take his time, and blah, 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 or even sometimes canvas opinion himself. He was back to me in two days saying, I love this. And, you know, I, I could have peed my pants with joy, but, you know, at hearing that. So I went on to finish it and mix it and master it all myself. Uh, and then I sent him the finished copy. And I 
although we've had a very good relationship, um, I just I I would I wanted him to manage me, and he and he was still up for doing that. Although he's been a very unwell man for the past um, three or four years, you know he's not the kind of guy he used to be uh, for various reasons. But you know, once I had him on board, I felt as confident as Stuart probably did after leaving the skids and wondering what he was going to do next. And I kind of draw that parity to that, and I just I just felt so confident. Uh, what made things even better is that um, I've got a new publisher, a guy called Stuart Ongby for um, SGO Music. Um, he just loved the album. and You can imagine how I felt. I just felt rejuvenated. I felt I had a purpose. Oh, yeah. So Incredible. I decided, yeah, we decided just to sort of wait until the right time. And also I had, to, I had a lot to learn about the music industry. You know, I'd been teaching it for 13 years, but because I'd been out of it, the 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 parameters of the industry have changed so much and you know my idea of record companies is archaic because <laughs> yeah. there aren't any record companies anymore and i had to learn how people did things and uh i was introduced to this fantastic guy who runs an organization called pledge music here and um i was just given chapter and verse about what you've got to do in order to try and make a viable album and make it viable and how it's funded and, and basically, you know, how you've got to engage with your public in order to do this. And uh, I kind of thought that was extremely daunting, but I thought it was, it was probably the kind of challenge I really need to really kind of compound my, 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 uh, how I felt about myself. Oh yeah. To do this. So last year, uh, me and my job parted ways and I, dedicated myself until this point to bring the news that uh, I, I'm going to present to uh, hopefully the world later on this year an album called My Time. It's got, um, it's got 12 tracks, it's 11 tracks plus a lovely song I wrote um, back in 2011 and it's only a demo but I just think it's just so sweet. Uh, but the, the album is basically how I've always heard music, which is loud guitars, lots of guitars, big drums, um, this little thing called bass going on in the background. songs and singing words that makes make sense and trying to introduce an art form and poetry to how I think and see. I mean, I, I, I will always credit Stuart as my biggest influence in terms of lyric writing. I mean, I had the great pleasure, which he kind of delegated to me, to proofread his lyrics after he oh, finished. Wow. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I really enjoyed doing that. I really enjoyed trying to work out 
where he, he was coming from in many places. And um, I learned a few secrets as well, which I'm not going to divulge here. But, uh, I, I learned a few <laughs> secrets about how he engaged with lyrics. And, uh, you know, he was such a master craftsman at that concept. And I, I really hope I was never, in, never destined to copy because I couldn't. But I was hopeful that what, how I wrote would give it enough credibility within itself. You know, they're not trite lyrics. They're not rhyming lyrics all the time. They're, they're, they're things about things I, I, I know and love and wanted to relay to, the, to an audience. So I was really comfortable with the lyrical content that I came up with. And I, like Stuart, as a tunesmith, if it hasn't got a tune, I'm not interested. Mm-hmm. If it hasn't got a melody... Yeah. And if you've got a vocal melody and you've got guitar melodies that complement that, I'm in heaven. And that's where I put myself. And uh, that's, that's how I kind of came about that. Wow. That, is, that is incredible. Well, hold on for just a second because I think yeah. this, this announcement deserves a gigantic round of applause. This is fantastic news. I mean, I think everyone is, is going to be so excited to hear this. And the fact that you're back with Mark on, a, on some of these tracks, that's yeah. incredible. That's incredible. I can't wait to hear that chemistry again. Well, it's, uh, it's still there. <laughs> I'm sure. It works. And, uh, you know, but I, as I said earlier on, just the mere fact that he was working for me was a weird scenario, but sure. it's still us. It's still what we do. You know, we still work the way we would work if we were doing sessions for other people or if we were working within a band. You know, we we are very very detailed about how we present ourselves in terms of bass and drums. But I had this bigger picture to to, to keep an overview of as well. It's not just the bass now; it's the whole concept of the tunes. But um, the um, one song that I had in mind right from the beginning is a song called She's Coming Home, which is a song about my daughter and her adventures of young life moving to London to find her life with her boyfriend and trying to overcome the, the pressures of life. And, then, and she gave it eight years and she did really well. But one day she said she's coming home and uh, that's what that song's all about. Oh, wow. And Mark, Mark sort of, oh. It exemplifies that song, and 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 I I wrote it hearing him playing in the background. So that's incredible. That's really, really. This is why this the album will be very passionate to me because they're not just songs. Well, you've had you've always had such unique uh, ideas for some of your lyrics as well. I mean, like thinking back to even the day the tree when the tree comes down. That yes. from, I mean. <laughs> Who who writes a song about that? But it's something that we can. I know Svine and I both really relate to that feeling completely. <laughs> well, so it's yeah. because it's the most depressing day in the world. When <laughs> it is, it, it really up, is. Come twelfth night, Christmas is done, and that's bollocks. The day the trees come down on that January day, an empty feeling grows in my heart until the bright sun comes and the snows melt away. I think about that song every year when that, when that happens, every single year. <laughs> and uh, we are going to talk a bit more about that album later on if we have time. I'd love to. But, but first of all, uh, the new album is autobiographical. 
Yes. Uh, that, that seems to go hand in hand with something else. Yes. Again, part of my reluctance not to really come out and say much about anything after I left the band in 2012. Um, on the other side of the fence, if I was interviewed, I wouldn't know what to say because, you know, I consider myself a nice guy. I have no, I want to hurt people. I don't want people to be upset with me with any kind of statements that I wanted to. And I certainly didn't want to do anything out of knee-jerk reaction. But, you know, there were situations which I could have fallen into that hole if I did do that at that time. But, you know, I'm a big boy and I take, I, I, I always, I never knee-jerk. I always leave it till the next day to come to a decision about something important. But it's taken me this long to sort of come to terms of how do I deal with that and, and be honest and be reflective without sort of people thinking that I'm out to hurt people. Right. So I decided to write a book, for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, That's again, awesome, I, I, well, this, the, the reason I came up with it is because, number one, it's something I would never have done if I was still married because my ex-wife was a journalist. And she would she would clap me around the head any time she spotted any spelling mistakes. <laughs> so writing a book was would have been a real kind of grind for me. But um, you know, uh, but I decided it was the only way that I was going to be able to explain myself. But I was very very sure about the time period that I wanted to to deal with because I have been urging Ian Grant for for years that, you know, a man of his stature, you know, he's worked with some fantastic bands, including us. Yeah. You know, people need to learn from his experience as a, as a innovative manager. And I believe at some stage he will come out with a book. I know that me writing this book has certainly given the kick up the pants to, to do one. Good. But I decided that, I, well, I didn't decide. I kind of thought that anything about big country from its inception to Stuart's passing, he would cover. So I didn't want to really sort of go down into that sort of territory. So I decided that the story needed just to be from Stuart's passing to afterwards, to now. And uh, what I did is that I kind of started putting, uh, I, I kind of started this when I went, again, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm real bugger. I, don't, I hated holidays. I never used to go on holiday because when you're in a band that toured as much as the uh, big country did, going on holiday was a chore. It's packing another bag to go somewhere else again. Right, right. Uh, staying at home was bliss. <laughs> but uh, about three years ago, me and my new partner went to Cyprus and uh, I, put, I took my laptop with me and uh, sat in this fantastic house that we were staying at, which were friends of ours who are very good friends. And I used to sit on the balcony. And I just started tapping away, and all of a sudden, I found I had you know, a couple of thousand words, and by the end of the week, I had about you know, three and a half thousand words. And, and I, ha I thought I'd better sit back and really have a look at this, and then try to structure it, because I was just letting my head empty, basically. So from that point on, I, I kind of went back to it now and again, and just sort of put it into shape. And it wasn't until the beginning of 2015 I decided to really knock it into some shape about what it is I wanted to talk about but also to try to be as um, accurate with dates and stuff 
This is where John Gouvier comes in, by the way. Because <laughs> I, 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 you know. That guy it, sucks. <laughs> <laughs> there he is. <laughs> being a teacher, one learns, you know, research is everything. And uh, I, I, research was, became second nature. Anyway, I decided to, I, I, was, I was trying to find somewhere that I could get dates of this and blah, blah, blah. And, was, and then I found this site called bigcountryinfo.com. <laughs> yep. And then I thought, who runs that? What, who, who's, who's, who, who knows more than I do? <laughs> and I, I found myself using that as a point of reference. John, you get a credit in the book, by the way, so don't worry. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, and, and, I thought, right, and, and it really helped me because Ian Grant has also got a great memory. He's got a photographic memory for names, faces, places, and, and everything. So between that website and Ian, I was able to really try to be as accurate as possible because how I was, I started writing something one day and I had an idea, I had a, 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 what I called a memory flashback to a particular time, which was going back into the area that I didn't want to really sort of, sort of, go into because of, of how I explained earlier. But what I found that by doing that, I was able to introduce anecdotes, which then made sense of what I was doing at, the, you know, at that particular time. And I started pop mark, marking the whole book with anecdotes from different times, which made sense of the ensuing chapters that went along. Oh, that's interesting. And then when I, when I um, gave it to Ian to read, that's the first thing that he picked up on. He said, you know, he thought it was just going to be a chronology of, of you know what happened, but I've kind of made it interesting by dipping my feet into the well of anecdotes rather than sort of you know the diatribe that one could go into, particularly in the past. Uh, but I went further than big country. I was going back into Townsend years and on the air years and all that kind of stuff, and wow. I really got quite excited about my life because I'm really rubbish at re- remembering the things that. I've, I've been part of and you know I'm not Sergeant Bilko I don't sit down and look at my own videos and listen to my <laughs> records all right. the time I never ha- I never have done so for me to go, get into this kind of research thing I was I was kind of going wow that's incredible I didn't realize we did that or blah 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 or I look at the list of dates for a certain year and I go my god did we do all that touring mm. thanks John <laughs> <laughs> and I was just re- Relinking myself to my past, and I just really, really appreciated what we did, and, and uh, but more so what we did as a band, but what I have done myself as a musician. So that book has given me an opportunity to describe about a certain period of time, but also bring in anecdotes about why I got to that point. So I, I was, I'm really sort of pleased with the way it came out. So uh, I again. I had an album and I had a book and I kind of thought, well, I need to be able to do something with them. Uh, and that really came together after my discussion with uh, this chap at um, Pledge Music. Um, to put an album out, raise some cash via pledging, I would need some interesting pledge items. And I kind of went on their website and looked to what other people were using as pledge items. And I thought, well, I don't know. They're all pretty reasonable stuff, but I'd like to do something that's a bit more sort of personal and a bit more interesting. Please tell uh, me the uh, the Peace in Our Time T-shirt that you wore is on is on there. 
That's upstairs in the drawer. <laughs> oh, <is it> really? <laughs> I want that. That's not going anywhere. Oh, man. I might pull it out for a laugh one day. It's <laughs> fantastic. That reminded me of another anecdote. But, um, I, um, so I thought, and we discussed this, he said the book would be an amazing aspect of a pledge. So that gave me some other ideas for sort of pledge items to get involved with, which I, 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 I won't say anything about now until the pledge campaign starts, which hopefully will be in about a month's well, a uh, month's time, which is where are we now? We're in June, about July-ish. So uh, I, I, want the, I want the pledge campaign to sort of uh, do for me what I need to do to, to, to establish this project. And that is, number one, get the record out. Number two, promote it properly. Number three, get the musicians I want to come on this uh, little jaunt of live performances that I'd need to do because I'm a live artist. Mm. I mean, considering I played everything bar drums and one guitar overdub, it would be pretty rubbish for me just to go on stage with a backing track. So I want yeah. a back. I, uh, you know, I want Mark on, uh, on drums. Uh, who else I recruit? Uh, that's something that will be determined over the next period. Well, so Mark might actually be going on tour with you, or is that confirmed already? I will drag him screaming. <laughs> That's incredible. No, no. Well, we talked about it when he was uh, when he was with me on that one day. Okay. And um, I, I just think it would be poetic justice if you know we always wanted to do something even way back when we were rhythm for hire. You know, we wanted to do something recorded that we uh, that we could be acknowledged for, apart from just being session musicians. You know. The idea of being the Sly and Robbie of Soho back in that day was really quite, you know, inspiring. But we never mm-hmm. did anything to really seal it. But um, right. I did, I, I did a, a bass masterclass with Mark in London a few years back. I've seen that video, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I shat myself because, you know, I was uh, being scrutinized by people who could really play bass, not <laughs> not be somebody who just emoted over an instrument and made noises. And uh, I kind of we just sat in the dressing room and very quickly sort of said, "Well, what can we do? Let's just do this, 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 and this, and, and demonstrate this, this, and this." And that's all we could do. So you got all these guys hammering away to get again, you know, Doug Wimbish and all these kind of people doing all this fabulous stuff. And there's me get the pick out, get the position out, and go <laughs> and, and just give it noise and get Mark to play along with and and. But it sounded that, great, though. I remember you did look away and and yeah. just those parts isolated like that. You see how brilliant they are. That's that's kind of how we thought was the best way to do this because there's no way that I wanted to do a kind of masterclass when everybody was just trying to out lick everybody. And sure. you know, I'm not that kind of player anyway. But to show how tracks are constructed in the studio between me and Mark specifically, I thought that was a good way of uh, of dealing with that. Now, I've always regarded me on my own as okay, but me and Mark together, fucking awesome. (laughs) This is how we've always worked. This is how we look at music. We look at music in terms of, obviously, just listen to basically what we're trying to develop and then make it dramatic or make it right or make it groove or whatever. And we we pay serious attention to these little bit of individual aspects, plus throwing in the artistic elements that we do. Um, one song that we that became a hit for us, particularly in America, was a song called Look Away. And I don't know how the bass line for this particular song came about, but it's puzzled me and I know a lot of bass players who try to sort of play it 
are puzzled by it, and uh, I can't explain what it is or why it is that the baseline has turned out in this particular way. So um, I'm going to leave it up to you to see what you think. Uh, in this stripped-down version, we can actually really hear what I'm doing. go back out with a band that features Mark would be possibly the ultimate dream. That's incredible. So, so you're basically saying then that the, both the album and the book are pretty much done. It's just a matter of you needing to uh, get them out there at this point. They're, they're both completed. Absolutely. Well, the, the, the album is completed, but there's one thing I'm still trying to do, which I won't say just in case it doesn't happen. But if it does, um, you guys will be the first to know. Oh, but the, book's, the, the book's done, and um, we'll, we're gonna once we get round to coordinating everything, then more information. The um, the other thing that's part of this announcement is that I've developed myself, which I'm really very very um, feel strange about because I've never really engaged in this kind of stuff. I've developed my own website. Fantastic. A brand new website, uh, which is obviously called My Time. And um, I've kind of gone back to school learning about, you know, all the processes and engaging it. Because what I want to do, I, wanna, I want to administer it myself. I don't want other people administering it for me. So right. I've made it so that I can sort of deal with stuff and update it whenever I like and keep it sort of, keep it vibrant and, and so on. And I'm going to have a brand new web page, a Facebook page. Um, I, I think I can give you some details. Um, the website will be www.tonybutlertb.co.uk. Got it. Okay. Okay. Uh, the Facebook one, I'm not that sure about, but uh, it's the, the name of it is Tony Butler Dash My Time. Okay. Uh, and I'm also at 60 years old on Twitter. <laughs> and there, this has been punishing trying to sort of get to get to grips with all this because I, I mean I like it's hard stuff. yes and I keep like to try and keep up to date but, but I kind of swore to myself a while ago Facebook is about as far as I'm going to go but uh, I was recommended I, I need to go on Twitter so I'm at Tony Butler TB60 that's fantastic I mean that, that's amazing you are truly a renaissance man still I mean <laughs> But I, I so respect that because you're you're 
finding things that you want to do and you're actually taking the time to learn how to do them so that you can do them exactly the way you want to do them. And I that's think it's important I do that because, uh, you know, the responsibility of being fronting something is something I've observed from a distance for a long, long time. I mean, going back to my, my years working for Pete, not, not working on his albums, I used to work for Pete. Um, he had his um, Maya Barber Center in Twickenham. Mm. I used to work out of there. I used to run Pete's synthesizer hire company. Wow. And I would run from Twickenham into central London in my little white VW van, delivering <laughs> very, very heavy CS80s and other like uh, sort of equipment oh to studios. And uh, I really enjoyed it. But what I saw, again, I saw the other side, the business side of somebody in that position, which you know not a lot of people saw. And we worked out... Work, working out of um, the Mayor Barber Centre, again, I was being exposed to stuff that, you know, a guy from Shepherd's Bush wouldn't normally get exposed to. So, you yeah. know, I took all of this on board all the way through my career. You know, I didn't... So although Stuart was obviously the kind of known and seen leader of the band, uh, Stuart delegated an awful lot to me in the background. Mm. And I was happy to do that. But I've, I, I used to have running arguments with him about saying he needs to stand up and enjoy being the front man and take the responsibility of the front man. Uh, it reminds me of a conversation we had before um, we were launching the Russian thing at the embassy. And yeah. he, he was he, he was due to go on our big national news uh, program, which is News at 10. And he turned around to me and said, oh, fuck's sake, Tony, I wish you were the leader of this band. <laughs> He really did not relish the, the idea of going onto a national news program that you know he watched as a kid and his parents would watch and his friends would watch. I think he was really sort of worried about coming across badly. And that's, that's the sort of down-to-earth guy he was. And that's kind of, in a way, how un-rock and roll he was. Yeah. I mean, I love the rock and roll sort of idea of, you know, swanning around like a rock star with the... With, uh, deep purple glasses on and, you know, hair all over the place. You know, <laughs> when, we went, when we went to LA to do Peace in Our Time, I was in my element. You know? I was going to say, yeah. I was living the dream and it was great. But And Stuart was, you know, he had a reserved side to him that really didn't sort of embrace that. So he used to delegate that sort of stuff to me privately. But I always used to tell him, you know, you are the front man and you've got to take that responsibility. Wow. But I learned. I learned from it and I learned how to put that into my own perspective because, you know, I, 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 I was never subservient, but I always served. Right, right. And it's, and it's weird to be in the position where now I'm going to call all the shots, I'm singing all the songs, I'm, I'm making all the decisions. The only person who's above me in my, in my particular sort of feeling is Ian Grant. Well, it kind of reminds me a bit of... Um if I can mention the song Eternal Empty Feeling with, with Dog, I mean, yeah. the lyrics of that song sort of paint the whole picture of what you've just laid out for us, even kind of ending with the, with the line, um, uh, achieving a vision and the vision is mine. I'm sure I don't have that exactly right, but yeah. you know which part I'm talking about. Well, I mean, that's, that's exactly what I've just explained to you because, you know, the, 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 the song Eternal Empty Feeling, I, I, it's weird because when I was – thinking about the lyric, this eternal, eternal feeling was what came to mind originally. 
But I think if I'm really honest, I put the empty in it because that's how I think not only I felt, but Bruce, Mark, Ian, everybody who's concerned with Stuart and his passing have had this unbelievably deep feeling of emptiness yeah. to deal with. And, and I don't think any of us have really come to terms with it. And, and, and I'm, I'm sure I can speak for everybody concerned and everybody who worked and knew with Stuart. Because uh, I, I think the idea that he's still not with us, for whatever reason, still hasn't fully sunk in. Because there was so much unachieved. There was so much that he could have achieved himself, let alone with the band. Yeah. That, you know, you, you always come back to that question, why did he do it? And I, I, don't, I don't think there's anybody who, who doesn't ask themselves, I mean, particularly for me every year, when people sort of Facebook and sort of put their memories up on, on the 16th of December. But, um, you know, that sort of notion passes me, but I don't go that deeply into it because, unfortunately, I lost my father on the same day uh, oh, yes. some 30, 30 years before. So oh, the 16th of December was always a, a bad day for me anyway. So having to deal with Stuart's passing on the same day, you know, my, my world fell very, very dim and eternal empty feeling is very much just an explanation of how I felt and I still feel. Sometimes you've got to pull your head out of your ass and sort of say, there is a future. Right. Otherwise, you just go down that road. Well, you know, and, and, the, and the fans, I think the fans, in, obviously in a completely different way, in a non less of a personal way as, as those who are closer to Stuart. But I think I can speak for a lot of the fans who listen to the show is that we, we've had that same feeling. Mm. And cer- certainly initially, and when we still have it, it's, it's still hard to come to grips with that. And, and I think... Um, you know, it's so different from, say, a Kurt Cobain situation where you can look at his lyrics, you can look at his presentation, and you understand that it's not, a, not as horrible as it was. It wasn't really shocking when it happened. Mm. Whereas with Stuart, who would, who would uh, work with you guys to make this such anthemic, uplifting music with, ironically, the, the tagline, Stay Alive, being the surprising or being the, the surviving tagline all these years. But mm. I think a lot of the fan base has taken the same idea over the years as, as you've kind of put out you know yes we can we can never we'll never figure this out but we can grovel and and put it behind us or we can 
you know, kind of take the music back up again as a as a badge of honor and and pick up the flag, so to speak. And that's why we're doing this. And I think that's important because otherwise we we would just enter that sort of abyss that Stuart obviously entered. Yeah, and, and it's you know that's not a very good thing for anybody. And I I just know from my experience how it's affected everybody around, including our families, because. You know, we all grew up together. We all had families and we all had kids who all grew up with the band. You know, from Ian Grant's kids to my kids, Bruce's kids. And they were all part of this family all of a sudden. You know, there were no family. Yeah. And, you know, I, I it, it kind of hurts a little bit when I, when I do think about Callum and Kirsten. Yeah. I haven't spoken to either of them since, um, since the tribute and since the, uh, the funeral. And it's not because I don't want to, and it's, it's purely and simply that I just feel as though they've got to get on with their lives. And, yeah. uh, you know, if they want to contact me, they can contact me, you know, but, or if next year I go on tour and I play Edinburgh, I'd love to see them there. You know, yeah. it's just that kind of, I don't want anything impacting in any particularly negative way. Sure. Uh, so, you know, everybody's got their life's lead, but I think everybody's got to see that there is a life to live and eternal empty feeling, not only denotes what that emptiness feels like, but that, that there has to be an, a semblance of an idea for a future that can be fulfilling other aspects of your life, which which Definitely. will make sense of it all. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's, it's really weird for me as a new writer for you to sort of pick up on stuff like that with those sort of lyrics. And, uh, yeah, oh yeah. And... and I, well, that, that gives me more confidence because the, the lyrical content on my time is in a similar vein. That's great. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, really, those things don't definitely don't go unnoticed. I mean, we, we, uh, we pour over that stuff too because we're used to doing that through, <laughs> through big countries' music. And as you said, Stuart was such a. Not yeah. something that happens in Britain. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Once it's done, it's finished. It's the shelf shelf life is gone. You know? Oh man. Well, as you can see, you know, we're all aging too, and we're still at this. <laughs> so we all have regular jobs and everything else. But yeah. you know, it's a part of our lives. All right, everyone, that is the end of episode 67 of the Great Divide podcast. And I think you will all agree with me that it was a fantastic milestone episode. We finally got Tony Butler on the show. And um, we're going to be hearing a lot more of him in the next couple shows. So a lot more to come, believe me. A lot of great big country stuff from the past, a lot of great anecdotes, a lot of great stories. And uh, it's fine. How did you feel about this discussion that we just had? Amazing. I wasn't sure we were ever going to get Tony. So this was... uh, Finally, the time was right. And he's told us this for many years. I'll be there when the time is right. (laughs) He says what he means, doesn't he? He does say what he means. And he did mean that when the time is right. But obviously, it wasn't always clear to us what that would entail. But obviously now, with an album coming out and a book and a tour and who knows what else after that, the time is right. So good stuff yeah definitely but thank you guys for listening i'm sorry it's been such a a long delay as we always say between episodes but uh there won't be a long delay between the next one and i'm sure you all agree that it was worth waiting for because this was uh, a heck of an episode so and john any final thoughts before we leave are you Uh, still lurking hey i'm still here can you hear me yes i'm I'm coming in kind of broken up 
Uh, I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got a lot, John. You got a lot. But anyway. So thanks, guys. We'll talk to you soon. Stay tuned for the next episode. It's coming relatively soon and a lot more great discussion to come with Tony Butler. Farewell. Yes, it. Buh, buh. <laughs> yes. Ah, sorry. Let's go that. Yeah. Thanks for blaming. Thanks for blaming me for everything that went wrong today. By the way. <laughs> <laughs>